Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Let's talk about being postmenopausal with PCOS. This is an Amber A Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Fisher. Thank you for being here again and joining me. Uh, those of you who are watching this on YouTube, I know I am looking really great. Um, you know, I don't always record podcasts in full uh, professional attire. Uh, today we're cash. Okay. So it's a Saturday and it's been a crazy week. Um, if you are here for the content only and don't want to hear about my personal experiences in life. And as a nutritionist, you might want to skip ahead about 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, it's been a really ridiculously crazy week. Um, I actually am going off topic this week because on TikTok and Instagram, I'm really into talking about inflammation right now. I'm, I'm doing a big series on PCOS and inflammation. I'm talking about just inflammation in general with chronic health conditions and how to eat for that and how to modify for that. And don't worry um, if you're waiting on a podcast for that, that is coming. I do have plans for several podcasts actually um, talking about all kinds of different things like that. But um, if I'm being honest, I'm a little behind on recording um, and editing podcasts. And I am about to, the recording of this, I'm about to leave for a few days to go um, on a little writer's retreat and work some on my PCOS course that's coming out in a couple months. And um, I was like, well, I need to sit down and record a podcast. And what am I going to talk about this week? And I decided to go and look through questions that I get. Um, speaking of, if you ever have a question for the podcast, there is a Google form that is linked below that you can look at and you can ask me any question that you would like me to answer on the podcast. And I love when you guys do that. And so I was going through my podcast and I noticed a, a, a cohesive theme and the theme was menopause and um, specifically PCOS and menopause, navigating that, navigating being post-surgical menopause. Um, and these are all big topics. But since I have personal experience in this department, I had a total hysterectomy, oophorectomy uh, just a year ago, actually, just about a year and a month ago. Um, I have personal experience with navigating what it's like to be post-surgical menopause in PCOS. And of course, I have a lot of experience working with postmenopausal women with PCOS as well, and just postmenopausal women in general. Um, I know I do a lot of fertility content on my page, um, and fertility work is really a passion of mine. I I, um, care so much about the infertility epidemic that I think is going on now, and the plight of women who want to become mothers. And so I put my heart and soul into trying to help as many women as I can become mothers without having to do what I did, which is practically bankrupt yourself to go through IVF to do that. Um, 
so I really care a lot about that issue, but that doesn't mean that I don't also care about other issues that concern women. I think women's health in general is just um, what really speaks to me the most. And so, um, yeah, and that includes the hormonal navigations and the inflammation navigations post-menopause. So we're going to talk some about that today. Um, yeah, it's been ridiculous, Bill, around here. I had, um, you know, every time that I have a video that gets seen by more people on TikTok, things blow up with the business. Um, and so I have had an influx of um, interest in my services, uh, which I suppose I'll mention right now because I do get a lot of the same question. If I take consults, if you can work with me, um, the answer is usually yes to that. I, I do work virtually with um, most people. I have a somewhat of a screening system because I am only one person and I like to devote as much time and energy to each of my clients individually as I can. Um, so I have a little bit of a screening system for that. But if you are interested in working with me um, and not sure if you'd qualify or um, you know, what that looks like, you can visit my website, amberfishernutrition.com. Um, and there's an easy way to fill out the form to potentially book a discovery session with me. So, um, I highly recommend doing that if that's something that you are interested in. And I would love to talk with you, but, um, there's also because of the COVID, um, surge that's been going on as, during this summer, um, there has been a shortage on a lot of the supplies that are used to run tests, um, particularly the food sensitivity and allergy testing that I do in my practice. And so I've had this huge backlog of new, new clients waiting on test results. And the way I normally do things is I like to gather labs before we get started. And this time, um, because of the because of the backup, it, it like really got me where I had I had a big group of people that were all waiting to start at the same time and we were waiting on labs and um and the lovely lab who is trying their best um decided to release all of them to me at once. And since everyone had been waiting far longer than they should have been, um I felt it was only fair to try to see as many of them in uh the same week as I possibly could. So uh, I believe I saw uh, 17 people this last week, and um, they weren't all new. Some some were check-ins and stuff, but that's not that's nor I normally don't see 17 people in a week. Um, you know, I work um, I work full time hours, but I I see clients part time um, because there's so many other aspects of my business, and I'm home with my with my son and like to spend as much time with him as I can since he's only two. But uh, 17 clients in a week is a lot for me. Those of you who are therapists or if you work in uh, healing professions or healthcare professions where you're uh, seeing patients or clients, you will understand 17 people in a week is a lot, especially when you spend about an hour with each of them. So um, it's it's just work. the work that I do is so profound and it's so beautiful and, um, it's so deep and, um, it's very uplifting for me, but I would be lying if I didn't say that sometimes it's also draining for me. Um, because I, each person that I'm with, I am putting my heart and soul into sending loving energy to them and to 
helping them get to the root of things. Like, this is really deep work we're doing. We're not just talking about food, you know? Um, it's the food is the vehicle for the healing, right? So it's intense and, and sometimes that can be draining if I'm being honest. So I, I'm a little, I'm a little sleepy today, but, um, you know, I never want to complain about, uh, about things going well, um, or about success because I'm more than anything, just profoundly grateful that I get to do this work. I think I'm just the luckiest person in the world that I get to have the life that I have and run the practice that I do and that I get to work with such a great team and that I get to be with my son and all that stuff. It's just like, it's amazing that my life has, has worked out the way that it has. And I'm really grateful. So, um, with that said, I am going to be on a little, when this, the day that this comes out, you guys can just imagine me. I'll be just on a little retreat. I'll be writing. I'll be working on that PCOS course. If you haven't heard about that before, let me give you a little detail about that. So I'm putting together a course that is going to be a overview of a functional nutrition approach to PCOS. And I'm basically distilling what I do with clients into a multi-module class. Um, it's at this point, uh, more than 30 pages single spaced of information. So it is, it is needing some edits. Um, <laughs> but there's so much information I want to get in here. So I'm trying to decide, you know, really my goal is I can't work with every single person one-on-one, right? But I feel that I have something special to share, something that I, I, I is unique and innovative. Um, and I, I don't feel like there are, um, I, there are some wonderful practitioners out there, but I think that some of the things that I've sort of discovered over the years, they just need to be more known. Um, and I, I feel like there's a lot of people that could be helped. So I really wanted to find a way, especially as this year, you know, I've become, I've had become more of a public face and I have more of a public image now. I've really wanted to find a way to distill that information into something that, you know, you could do on your own. Um, and of course there's, there's limitations to what a person can do on their own. You know, that's stuff I struggle to get across, on TikTok or Instagram, you know, I have 60 seconds to say something and I really struggle to, to convey the nuance of all of these health issues. Um, but I'm hoping that this is a good in-between because I know not everybody can either afford to work with me one-on-one or, you know, I just don't have the time to work with everybody one-on-one. So this is kind of like my way of distilling as much information as I can down. And I'm hoping that it, it really helps, um, a lot of people. So I'm working on that. Um, there is a wait, wait list to find out when it is available. Um, and actually I'm going to be setting a group of beta testers through the first round of the course. It's going to be self-paced, so you can do it on your own time. But, you know, I probably will give the first like 20, 30, um, people, uh, like a discounted rate so they can go through it and give me their feedback and I can kind of make changes based on their feedback, um, because I want it to be helpful. And, you know, sometimes what's helpful in my head is not actually helpful in practicality. So I've got a group already who's set to go through it and be beta testers, but 
I am, um, I'm making that waiting list and some of the people on that waiting list will get that opportunity. So if you are interested in that, if that's something that you want more information about, you can get on the waiting list, um, by either, uh, most people have been direct messaging me on Instagram, but you can send an email, um, that, you know, any way that you contact me, if you just say, Hey, I want to get on this waiting list, we'll get you on the waiting list. Um, sign up for my newsletter, which you can do through my website as well. And you'll hear about it, um, through there. So, um, the course is going to be a general, um, approach to PCOS. So it's not going to be fertility specific or menopause specific, or, um, even insulin resistance or inflammation specific. It's going to be a functional approach. So root cause approach of how I would suss out which direction to go with a person and, um, then what direction I would go with, um, diet. It's going to have a couple of phases, um, an early phase where I help you figure out, um, food sensitivities and other intolerances and things like that. And then a second phase where we work on lifestyle modifications and changes and, um, there's going to be meal plan included with it. But it's going to be a lot of education and it's really going to be right for the type of person who's like me and feels confused by PCOS and really has always wanted to um, understand their body better and understand how PCOS works and what it's doing and and why they're having these symptoms. I think for me, the, the most fundamentally helpful thing that I've gotten out of being a nutritionist is more understanding of the mechanisms behind all of this. And just like, it's given me a lot of compassion for my body that I didn't have before. Because before I knew what I know, I felt a lot of anger at my body for the symptoms that it was giving me. Like, why do I have facial hair? And why is it so hard to lose weight? And why can I not get pregnant? And now I understand that PCOS in many ways is your body's protective mechanism. It's just, it's a response to the underlying issue. So the PCOS itself is not really the problem. Um, it's a symptom of the problem. So that's, that's the kind of thing that you'll, you'll learn. You'll learn about why that happens and how it works. And it's going to be a mixture of evidence-based information. Um, you know, research-based information, we'll have citations and all that stuff, but it's also going to be a lot of clinical experience and anecdotes and what I've seen work because, um, you know, it takes a little while for things to catch up sometimes. And I want you guys to have all the information that I have. So anyway, if you want to get on the list. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. the list is waiting for your name. Uh, so that is that. Um, let's talk about menopause. I get a lot of questions about PCOS menopause because, um, like one reader or reader, you guys aren't readers. Like one listener said, um, what did she say here? She said that most of the information about PCOS 
is so fertility focused and it's really hard for her to know how to navigate uh, postmenopause with PCOS because we really often don't don't talk about that or we don't talk about what it's like post hysterectomy and that's such a shame I think because you know one fundamental thing to understand about PCOS is that it follows you through the life cycle. So it's not this thing that you have only during your reproductive years. It's not this thing that goes away when you have a hysterectomy. Uh, there's a, always a misconception about that. People think that um, if you go on birth control, that it, it fixes your hormones. And they think that if you have a hysterectomy, it takes away the PCOS. No, see, the PCOS is the symptom. The PCOS is not the root. So... Um, you take away the ovaries and all that metabolic energy, all those metabolic issues, they just find a new place. Um, so let's get into that a bit. What does that mean? Um, it kind of goes, it kind of goes like this with PCOS. There's, there's sort of three big roots and you have to pull at these roots to figure out where it's coming from. And those three roots are are insulin resistance, um, inflammation, and adrenal dysfunction. Now, you'll hear a lot of people talking about the PCOS types. And I've done podcasts on this. I've done videos on this on all kinds of things. But I always, like, am a little bit resistant about doing content like that because the thing is people want to hear that and they respond to it. And so it gets important information into people's ears. Like if you had never heard about the types before, it's like fascinating. Like, wow, there's types. And, you know, here's another avenue I can go down that's a little more specific than just here's what you should eat for PCOS, which is always like, you know, oh, reduce your insulin resistance. That That's basically all you ever hear, right? Or eat to lose weight. So knowing about the types is kind of cool because it's like, okay, so... I maybe not necessarily such an insulin resistance person, but maybe I'm an inflammation person or maybe I'm a cortisol person. Um, the, the true reality is that PCOS is really kind of this vortex. I've been talking about this lately. It's a vortex of symptoms, right? And they all feed each other. So the hyperandrogenism, the hyperinsulinemia, which is when you have excessive insulin production, the um, cortisol issues, all of that, it all feeds each other. Um, so most people with PCOS have all of these things going on. Now, um, there is a select group, about 20% of those with PCOS who have a specific type of PCOS that, that really truly is adrenal driven. Um, but that's a smaller cohort of the people that, that have this condition. And, and I think because it's, it's a smaller cohort and because we hear that it's like, okay, it's the specific ranges of DHEA that, that kind of sets you as part of this group. We think that um, if we don't have that DHEA issue, that we don't have cortisol issues. And the reality is that almost all of us with PCOS have some, some weirdness with our cortisol. Like just because we don't have high DHEA doesn't mean that our adrenals are functioning super great, you know, doesn't mean that we don't have cortisol rhythm imbalances and, and all kinds of things. I mean, I can tell you personal experience, like I have never had blood work that says I have high DHEA, but I sure as heck have cortisol issues. Uh, my cortisol has been high in the morning for years. Um, and despite my best efforts, you know, it still remains one of those little sneaky little issues that I just have to work on. Um, so, when we realize that 
PCOS has all these roots that are outside of the hormones that are very metabolic, that are related to the way that we process food and the way that our body creates insulin to process that food and the way that our body manages stress and our adrenal balance and the way that our body manages inflammation um, and food sensitivities and all that kind of stuff. We realize that unfortunately, um, if you take the ovaries out of the picture, it still doesn't really fix the problem. Um, so that's thing number one to understand that although you are postmenopausal, whether through uh, surgical menopause from having a hysterectomy or just natural menopause, um, you still have PCOS and you still should manage your condition as if you have PCOS. Um, once you are postmenopause, a lot of the longer term risks of PCOS start to crop up. So this is when um, bone loss, um, bone density issues. Um, this is when um, heart disease issues, uh, type two diabetes, these kinds of things. They they often develop after. Uh, menopause. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the hormones change so much, you know, but we've still got this deeper metabolic issue going on. So, um, you know, what I think is the best step when you have inflammation and you have, um, or sorry, when you, when you are postmenopause with PCOS is to start by looking at inflammation. Um, because I have this sneaky suspicion that, that the chronic inflammation that is present in like everyone with PCOS is really more of the root cause of a lot of these issues than anything else. Um, I think it's part of what makes us insulin resistant. I think it's part of what uh, drives our cortisol imbalances. And I think it's part of what drives us to like the creation of food sensitivities, which are so common in PCOS. You know, studies have shown that when you have PCOS, you have something called dysbiosis and, um, or you frequently have something called dysbiosis, you know, a huge percentage, I think about 40% of women with PCOS have also been diagnosed with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. So it's really common to have these imbalances in bacteria, to have digestive issues, um, all that kind of stuff. And those digestive issues often come from imbalances in the bacteria, whether they be overgrowths or, you know, not enough uh, variety of bacteria or whatever it may be. Um, back, the bacteria in our gut, what's called our microbiome, is really important for our overall health. And in PCOS, we often have issues with this. We also, because of that dysbiosis, we tend to have more what, what's called beta-glucuronidase enzymes. And beta-glucuronidase enzymes are really tricky because what they can do is they can take estrogen that has already gone through the liver and been processed and conjugated and like ready to be excreted through the feces, and they can actually, um, you know, unpackage it, I guess I should say in simple terms, unpackage it so that your body can reabsorb it and it has to go through that process all over again. And that can lead to some... Um, you know, imbalances in the sex hormones. And frequently it, it, in PCOS, it leads to what we'd call estrogen dominance. Um, and that is an issue because post-menopause with PCOS, 
it's very tricky to navigate, like, am I actually in menopause or not? So if you've, if you've gone through surgical menopause, of course, you know. Uh, but if you are going through menopause naturally with PCOS, it can be really, really tricky this time. Because if you haven't had normal periods anyway, it's like, well, how do I know if I should still be having a period or like if I've just gone through menopause or not? And this is where a lot of a lot of the diagnosis of endometrial cancer happens at that this age group during um, perimenopause or during early menopause because one of the symptoms of endometrial cancer is abnormal bleeding, but it's also these long periods before the abnormal bleeding starts where there's no bleeding, which could easily be mistaken for perimenopause or menopause. So... Uh, Number one, um, and, and this is fed by, oftentimes fed by estrogen dominance, especially if we are going through perimenopause or menopause and we have stopped ovulating, um, then we get this situation where we don't have very much or any progesterone being produced or very little, but we still have a lot of different places where estrogen is being produced. You know, um, if we've got this if we've got this detoxification issue and we can have issues with the beta-glucuronidase enzymes in the gut, but we can also have issues with the, um, you know, with detoxification in the liver. So if we've got that going on, if we've got excess body fat, that creates its own estrogens. Um, and not to mention the, the numerous ways that we are exposed to excessive endocrine disruptors or um, exogenous estrogens. So, you know, BPA and um, xenoestrogens and all of that stuff that's in our plastic water bottles and all these different things. So there are many, many ways that a person can be exposed to estrogens, not so many ways that a person gets exposed to progesterones. Their body has to make it. And in PCOS, we're not historically super great at making it, um, especially not during this time. So I think the biggest thing that I would say for this time period if you're going through natural menopause is to watch out for those for that bleeding um, that abnormal bleeding or that that lack of bleeding and advocate for yourself um, there's nothing that says that you can't ask your OBGYN if you if it's been a while since you've had a period to check your uterine lining I mean it's a simple transvaginal ultrasound to check how thick your uterine lining is if you're truly in menopause it shouldn't be overly thick right it should be thin um but if if you've started to develop endometrial issues, then it's going to be that it's going to be thick, and you can request a biopsy, and your doctor probably will if they see a thick lining, ask for a biopsy, and that's the first step towards getting answers in that respect. So that's something to think about. The other thing to start thinking about when you're going through menopause, and this applies to whether you've gone through surgical menopause or um, natural menopause, is that. Lower levels of estrogen are associated with increases in inflammation um, and and increases in insulin resistance. So this is where it, where the line gets tricky. See, so it, this is where it's hard to say you know estrogen is bad or estrogen is good or because everything in the body exists kind of in a balance. And so I just talked about having too much estrogen and what that can do. But then there's also this thing, and I think this is more common when you go through menopause surgically because it's so abrupt and it's so quick. And it typically happens when you're younger than, than what would be expected for you to go through menopause. 
And that quick rapid drop in hormones, especially if you don't, um, you don't get to be on hormone replacement therapy for whatever reason is, is pro-inflammatory. Um, estrogen in the right quantities is anti-inflammatory and that is part of the, and it's also protective. It's heart protective. It's, um, bone loss protective, like it's protective against these risks of chronic disease that, that you're at risk for as you get older. So this is why if it's at all possible, um, it's often recommended that you do some hormone replacement therapy until, um, you know, you're at the age where you would naturally go through menopause and then you kind of transition off of it. But in some cases with PCOS, if we've had, you know, whatever the reasons are for the hysterectomy, that may not be possible. Um, and even if it is, even if it is, so personal experience, I'm on hormone replacement therapy. Even though I've had endometrial cancer, I weighed the uh, risk benefit kind of analysis there with hormone replacement, and I decided in the favor of hormone replacement because um, uh, my quality of life was more important to me than the potential risk of breast cancer. And I looked at, with my doctor, we looked over my risks with my genetics and, and all of that and made the informed decision that, you know, I, I, I wanted to go ahead and be on, um, hormone replacement. And, um, but even in that, even in that situation, I'm, I have a significantly less, a smaller amount of estrogen in my body than I did before. And so that, that leads to side effects. Um, you know, those typical, uh, mens- uh, menopause side effects of, you know, a little bit of brain fog and concentration's not quite the same, hot flashes. One thing that's interesting about hot flashes in particular is that there is an association between adrenal issues and worsening, um, menopause symptoms. So, uh, you know, I know we're, we're talking about navigating PCOS postmenopause, but I want to put a plug in at this point to tell you that if you are having a lot of issues adjusting to those hormone changes and adjusting to those lower levels, and in particular, if you're having hot flashes and night sweats and some of those types of issues, there's a, there's a good chance that you maybe need to work on your adrenal um, balance. And so I think, you know, getting a cortisol rhythm test done, which those are saliva tests that are easy to run at home um, to see if you have an issue with your cortisol is a great place to start. And you can add some, maybe some adaptogens to your day. I personally take rhodiola during the day and I take ashwagandha in the evening. And, um, and those two things help me a lot. They help really, um, they help with my stress balance, but it's also really, really important with adrenal issues to not, you know, you can't out supplement a hectic lifestyle. Like you have to look at cutting back. You have to look at relaxing more. You have to look at, um, mindfulness techniques. We often talk about mindfulness techniques in this sort of like blow offy way where we kind of just want to, act like, okay, oh yeah, like we'll do mindfulness, but you know, it's not really that, you know, it's not really the thing that we need to do. It's just one of those things we have to say. But honestly, there, there's substantial research to back up the idea that mindfulness is inflammation reducing. Um, like there's literally been studies that have shown that different inflammatory cytokines reduce 
in people who do meditation or who do mindfulness. It's kind of amazing. They don't change their diet at all. They don't change their exercise routine at all. And yet they have reduced inflammation from, from just practicing mindfulness, you know? And if anything, I know it's hard to wrap your head around because it's like, when, when, where do we find the time? But I find it really fascinating because it's like, gee, here's something I can do. And and I don't have to like restrict myself more with food or, you know, add another like thing to my workout routine. Like it, it requires nothing of me except to just sit still for a little bit of my day, you know, and I, and that's hard that the, the funny thing is that's really hard for us to wrap our heads around now because as a society, we are just so, uh, like dopamine addicted. Like we're just on our phones, on our phones. And this is speaking from, you know, from not a place of judgment, but from a place of like, we have to do better. I have to do better. I mean, I'm on my phone a lot. Uh, so I circled around there. Um, So the reason I'm going over all these different things kind of all over the place is because addressing PCOS from a menopause perspective does kind of do that. Like you have to sort of get to your root um, or you have to address the things that are the most that have the most weight for you. And there is this tendency in in health to kind of want to set yourself apart and say like, well, I'm a special unique case and like I'm PCOS in menopause. And that's different than PCOS going through fertility. That's true to an extent, but then it's also not true to an extent because it's the same metabolic processes that are happening. So I just want to comfort you right now. If you've been like looking for PCOS information and a lot of it's for fertility and you're like, this doesn't really apply to me because like I'm not trying to get pregnant. It's okay. You can still glean value from that. You can still follow that advice. Um, There's nothing that a fertility person talking about PCOS is going to tell you that, well, I won't say nothing, but you know, there, there shouldn't be anything that they're talking about that wouldn't also be beneficial to you. What do they talk about mostly with fertility? You know, they talk about eating more seafood. They talk about having more leafy greens. They talk about some great supplements to help balance your insulin. Uh, those things are all beneficial, no matter what your age is with PCOS. Um, but then, you know, you can dig deeper than that too. And that's what we're trying to do in this podcast into what specifically you can do to support that menopause process. I think addressing your adrenals at that menopause point is really key. Um, the other thing that I, I always like to suggest is that we look at sources of potential inflammation. Um, since inflammation is pretty standard across the board, everyone with PCOS has it. And I find that the, sometimes the inflammation stuff gets worse with age, especially if it hasn't been addressed. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I like to recommend, it doesn't matter how old you are or what your goals are. I think a, a, a good elimination diet for about a month to figure out your food triggers is always helpful. And here's, the little caveat I'll get with that, give with that, and I say this all the time, I know, so you may have heard this before, but an elimination diet is not meant to be forever. If you take a food sensitivity test or you do an elimination diet and you find that you're sensitive to a ton of different foods, it does not mean that you have to eliminate them forever. It's just telling you that your body is kind of overreacting to things right now. And so maybe you have to remove them for a time, but if you can work on that gut healing piece 
and get everything healthy in there, then there's a good chance that you'll be able to add a lot of those foods back in. Um, Where people struggle, though, is with doing the gut healing stuff on their own. And there's a reason for that, because it's complex and it's individual. So there's a lot of uh, people get frustrated with me sometimes because I won't like directly say this is a good probiotic to take, or this is a good such and such to take. I try to help as much as I can with that stuff, but there's a limit to what I can say online publicly about like supplements because it kind of goes outside of what I feel is ethical for me to say. I get approached by a lot of supplement companies, a lot, um, to so, to be like, hey, will you do a TikTok video in exchange for the for this product, or like, we'll pay you to promote this product. I, I had one company be like, we'll we'll give we'll pay you, and we'll give all your followers a free bottle. And it was like, you know, a good, decent opportunity, um, but. I didn't feel, I don't feel that, 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 uh, repping like supplement companies that first of all, I have never used before and don't know anything about and don't necessarily trust. Um, and second of all, that are promoting products that are specifically, you know, targeted to, to PCOS in a way that that's just like not the way that I think about things from a root cause perspective. I just like, I don't feel that that's ethical. So I don't talk a lot about probiotics, um, and things that you can do or whatever, but that gut health piece is really important. And that's where you can try to do that on your own. And some people are really successful with that. They do a combination of probiotics and prebiotics, um, and different things like that to kind of support the, uh, the microbiome and, they give it time and in all of that stuff. And some people are really successful at reintroducing foods all on their own and and all that stuff. And they find a good balance for them. And then some people really struggle with it. And in those cases, or if you have a lot of foods that are problems, that's when I recommend that if you can swing it, like working one-on-one with somebody who's who knows how to who knows how to do that. And that's usually a functional medicine practitioner or a functional nutritionist. That's that's your next step. Yeah, it might it might cost you something, um, financially, you know, and I know that's not always possible for everyone, but I think sometimes we don't prioritize things with our health, our preventative health, the way that we should. And I always think about health as, as an investment in your future. And, um, and so, you know, you work on your nutrition now and hopefully you're a healthier person when you're a little older and you're less at risk for things. Uh, so addressing food sensitivities and all that kind of stuff is really key. And I think at the, at the menopause point or the post hysterectomy point, that's really key. And I'll I'll give you personal experience with that because I, of course, have done this work for, um, we're going on seven years now. I've been in private practice and I have worked on my own health issues for longer than that. And I figured out a while ago that I had a dairy sensitivity and an egg sensitivity. And at one point I had a gluten sensitivity too. So I've gone round and round and round. And over the years, I have figured out how to fix a lot of those issues to where now, like for example, today I went, my um, family wanted to meet up and go to Baskin Robbins. And I didn't get the non-dairy ice cream today because I wanted to try the dairy flavor and I'm fine. Um, And before that would have really, really messed with me. 
So uh, I, I had figured out a way just through time, and it took years, you know, but through time and through good supplementation and through um, just different functional principles, had gotten to a place where I had kind of fixed these food sensitivity issues. And then came last year where I had the hysterectomy and, um, it was, and then it was post-pregnancy too. So I was, I was, my son was only nine months. So I had had this pregnancy. I gained a lot of weight. I gained, uh, like 40 pounds and I didn't lose any of it after I had the baby pretty much lost the baby weight and the amniotic fluid weight. And my baby was a preemie. So he was only three pounds. Um, I lost that and that's about it. And I, I hovered at around 195 pounds for about five months, um, which is significantly uh, more than my normal and felt really bad. Um, just had like breakouts and acne and um, just like insulin resistant stuff like crazy and was really exhausted. Anyway, it was all the postpartum stuff mixed with just this, all this metabolic stuff. And then I, and then I had the, you know, the hysterectomy, um, and the, and that was very traumatic on my body. And so it was like all these traumas in a row. And I found that in the last year, um, especially in the early parts of this last year, that all those food sensitivities that I had really dealt with and had gotten to a good place with this, they came back with a vengeance. Um, and my dairy sensitivity was like worse than ever in some ways. And it took several months again But I finally, you know, now I know how to do it a little bit better than I did before, but I I put myself through the same protocol that I often put clients through and, and got myself to a a much better place. So, um, it is, it is possible to do that, but it's, it's one of those things where when you go through a trauma or when you go through a stressful period and menopause is a stress, it's a huge stress on your body you sometimes need to reassess things. Like the way that you ate before might not work for you anymore. You don't have the same hormone balance. And hormone balance is really key for like weight maintenance or for insulin. Estrogen levels are really key for for all kinds of things. So now that you've gone through menopause, things work different. You know, I mean, I always used to hear women talk about the change and all that and think, like, oh, thank God, I don't have to deal with that until later, or they're exaggerating or whatever. No, it's it's real, you know. It's it's this whole new way of looking at you, at looking at your body, of it's this whole new way of of connecting with yourself. And you have to really relearn yourself. You have to really like re get to know um what you need and what your body needs. And that's hard. It's not easy. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about with postmenopause is uh, intermittent fasting. So I do find that this is a big difference between the recommendations for fertility and the recommendations for postmenopause. But I often recommend that postmenopause, we maybe try out some time-restricted eating. Um, I don't love women in general to skip entire days of eating. Um, but I do think that restricting the window in which you eat can be beneficial. I have been experimenting with this myself over the last year. Um, and it has really helped a lot with my insulin balance. I've been wearing this continuous glucose monitor for almost a month now and have tried all kinds of different things. And what I've realized is that 
Um, fasting has really been key for me because I don't have great blood sugar control. Um, I, my, it's not that my blood sugar doesn't go down because I make enough insulin. It's just that the spikes can be quite variable depending on what I'm eating. And the days when I fast, I tend to do better with, with it. And, um, and it's helped me to keep my blood sugars in the normal range more. So, uh, I have been recommending this for a while. I think if you're struggling with weight in particular, this can be really helpful. And time-restricted eating or what sometimes is called intermittent fasting can really mean different things to different people. Um, You know, sometimes people just start off with a 12 or a 14-hour fast. And, you know, that's like 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., which to me doesn't sound like that much. Like I feel like most people should be doing that anyway, but that is technically time-restricted eating. And um, if you're not doing that already, if you're not having a solid 12 hours when you're not eating, no matter where you are, whether you're menopause or not, you need to move yourself in that direction. It's really important for your body. But in addition to that, um, you can continue pushing the window more. Now, what I've realized about myself and what is, you know, based on what we know about circadian rhythms, it does tend to work better for your blood sugar in particular if you do your time-restricted eating earlier in the day. So you start eating earlier in the morning and you stop eating earlier in the afternoon or evening. Um, you know, for me, I have, I've tried this a little bit. It's very difficult. And I would say that that uh, culturally, I think it's really, really difficult for us to skip dinner um, just because we are so used to to eating dinner. I love dinner. I mean, and then it, it, it's to me, it helps me sleep. So I don't like to skip dinner. But what I have been doing is having more of my carbohydrates and more of my food earlier in the day. So I break my fast, um, you know, sometimes between noon and 2 p.m., and then I have a a meal, not like a crazy meal. I try to really load up on veggies. One of the risks of time-restricted eating is if you don't eat enough during your window. So some people use it as an excuse to kind of starve themselves. But you can eat all the food that you're supposed to eat, all the calories you're supposed to eat. Um, you're just supposed to eat them in this window. So you, you sometimes you have to be intentional about it because you might not be hungry for it. Um, so I try to load up on my veggies. I try to do smoothies, like I'll do a meal, I'll do a smoothie, and then I will do like a light dinner. And I usually tend to make my dinners very ketogenic, um, so very low carb. So it'll be a protein and a veggie and a, and a fat, and that's kind of it. Or it'll even be like, you know, a, a protein shake or something like that if I'm really in a hurry and I've eaten more during the day. So if you want to know what works for me, that's what's been working for me lately. Um, and I think that that is uh, very helpful post-menopause because time-restricted eating is associated with decreases in inflammation. It's associated with decreased insulin resistance. Um, it can be very beneficial for our mitochondria, which are the energy makers of our cells. And it can be just, it's just kind of good for your body uh, when you're not trying to actually like create another human to have some space um, and some time to digest things and process things and to not have to be making insulin. Um, So 
little tip with that that I'll mention before we close up for the day, but if you do drink coffee or caffeine, you want to wait to start drinking that stuff until you've started eating for the day. It's not great to drink caffeine on an empty stomach, even if it's black with no, you know, sugar sweetener or or fat in it, even if it's bullet coffee or whatever. You don't want to do that while you're in your fasting time because that will upregulate your um, cortisol. And, uh, and yeah, and, and with all that, you know, the cortisol balancing is, is huge for this too. And, and the fasting and the cortisol, you know, they can get in each other's way. Sometimes, sometimes you can balance them out. Um, but they can get in each other's way. So if you notice that you, you start sleeping really poorly and all that, then that might be a sign that, okay, you need to go back to some smaller meals that are, that are spaced, um, evenly and all that stuff. So, um, that's a little bit about all of this. I hope that helps. Uh, if you have further questions, so I'm actually really, really fascinated with this topic and I'm planning a series on this topic that's a little bit more, you know, structured than this podcast has been. Um, but I wanted to get some, just kind of get some stuff off my chest about it today. Um, but I am planning like a, a specific series. So if you have specific questions about PCOS and menopause, if there's anything that I said today that kind of triggered a question for you, please reach out, please ask. Um, I, I do my best work based off of you guys' questions and I really, really appreciate them. There are no stupid questions. Um, I, I want to know what, what people don't know. Um, sometimes I get to the point where I have been doing this so long that I forget to explain certain things. Cause I just assume that, um, that everybody's like in my brain, you know, and, and, and I, um, it's nice when you guys ask me questions and I remember like, Oh yes, I have to explain that piece too. So thank you. Um, one other thing I'd like to ask of you before you go for the day, Really quickly, if you have a chance and you have Apple Podcasts or iTunes, if you would leave a review for the podcast, a five-star review, please. Um, we are always in need of reviews. It really helps get the podcast to other people and it helps protect us from occasionally, you know, we get a mean review and, um, you know, those people are not our people. But I like to show, I like to, to ask for reviews on the podcast because if this podcast is really helping you, um, it would mean so much to me to see a review from you. So uh, if it's helping you, I hope you'll do that. If, um, if it's not helping you, then I'm really sorry. And, but I am glad that you stayed all the way till the end. It's 50 minutes in here. I hope you guys have a really good week and uh, I will talk to you soon. Bye. something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both i'd love it if you would leave me an itunes review and share this with a friend if this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer there is a google form that you can use to ask me any question you want and i might answer it here on the podcast i do it all the time and i would love to hear from you thanks so much for listening see you next time